Well, greetings, Exponential family, and welcome back to The Hub. My name is Bill Coconar. I'm part of the Exponential team, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this special edition of our book tour on our new book that we just released this week called Missional Vibrancy and Financial Viability. And uh, it's an honor to be here with the author of that book and a friend of mine, Dr. Jay Moon. Jay, welcome. Good to have you here. Bill, it's always good to be with you. Look forward to our time together. Yeah. And like I said, that book was just released this week. And um, Bruce is going to put up there the way uh, that you can get that book. It, um, it's a free download from Exponential. And we're going to be kind of walking through that uh, today. And so you'll have a chance there. You can see the, uh, uh, the cover of the book there. There are a lot of uh, practical. It's interesting. There are a lot of practical information in there, but um, maybe in a... It, in a different paradigm than what we've normally thought of. And so, uh, so we're anxious to, to get into that. Uh, for those of you that don't know Jay, Jay's actually uh, served 13 years as a missionary, largely in, in Ghana and West Africa, where he's focused on church planting and water development. He's presently the professor of evangelism and church planting and the director of office, faith, work, and economics at Asbury Theological Seminary. And um, you may have uh, probably heard him speak um, and, and certainly has written a lot on the areas of church planting, evangelism, and, and in particular, marketplace mission, which is uh, some of what we'll cover today. Um, in addition to his role, um, in, in addition to those roles, he's also a teaching pastor at a local church plant uh, and church planting coach. And uh, he's also an entrepreneur with a handful of businesses. And we'll, we'll likely get into both of those as part of our conversation today. Uh, and they can they can contact you at at w at m w at moons.com right perfect okay yeah so um, uh, Bruce also put that into uh, the chat so you can um, uh, get that as well and and we want to have I mean this is a live webinar so we want to have a chance to get your questions answered so feel free to uh, put those in chat and Bruce will uh, get those to you and we, as best we can we'll get your questions answered but uh, yeah, Jay, I've been been looking forward to this um, to this webinar because I think this what you're talking about has significant bearing on where I think the the church is going and needs to go in, uh, in not just in the near future, but even now. And so um, it, it's definitely something that church needs to be thinking about. So maybe as we just kind of get started here, if you give us sort of an overview of the book and and you know even what what you what you wanted to accomplish in writing this book. Yeah, very good. Well, thanks, Bill. Appreciate what you do at Exponential and all the good activity here. And actually uh, being on the cutting edge of new information as well. What I'm hoping to do in this book is provide some hope for church planters that may have a God-given vision to plant a church, but they've kind of given up because they haven't been able to raise like $500,000 for the next three years. Or maybe it's a church that uh, they've been in planting mode and they're kind of stagnated and they haven't reached 100 people yet, so therefore they're not able to support a full-time pastor as the traditional model dictated. And they may be about to close, and maybe COVID has kind of put the final nail in the coffin. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to talk to that person to say, I think we can help you keep that church open. So instead of being one of the 4,000 churches that are going to close this year, I think we can cut that number in half because we've relied upon old financial models, and it's almost like operating a blockbuster mentality in the midst of a Netflix generation. Let's get outside of some of these old wineskins and look at these six different options that can 
have uh, missional vibrancy. I mean, the reason to keep the church open is not just so that it opens its doors, but that it has a mission that it wants to accomplish, but also it's financially viable to do so. Uh, yeah, the uh, blockbuster Netflix is such a great analogy. Um, and, I, and I think if I remember correctly, the Netflix founder uh, was frustrated by late fees yes his movies and that's yeah what, what led to the innovation and so uh so yeah and i think as a church we need to be open to that before uh, maybe if, just kind of run through what you see as kind of the traditional financial model for churches and church plants and and just you know talk you know, so that we're kind of all starting on the same page and then why you feel like those are no longer sufficient Yes. Well, the traditional model for church planting has been that you get enough money up front for three years runway. And then after three years, the hope is that you'll have 100 people there that are tithing. And then those tithers will support a full-time pastor. Now, there's several problems with that. The first is that uh, some of the numbers for a three-year runway to get that cash up front is about five hundred to $700,000 typically. And it could be even more in, um, you know, like the city areas that have higher cost of living. So that's one obstacle. And I know a lot of planters that after several years of trying to raise the money had just given up, which is a shame. They have a God-given calling and vision, but they just can't raise that kind of cash up front. And suppose also, instead of the goal of reaching 100 people, what if God's best intent for that community is to be about 30 people or so? And if that's the case you'll never be able to get enough tithes and offerings to support a full-time pastor. So in short, these models are just not sufficient anymore. And we're finding that due to the number of church closings and how COVID has exasperated that trend. So I think there's fresh opportunity to think of new wineskins in this generation. Um, Howard Snyder, who's written about, you know, the community of the King and and problem of wineskins says that regularly, um, generations need to change their wineskins. And this may be a time, I feel, that those wineskins of financial models are holding back the church, not helping it. And we need to move beyond that. You know, a lot of the, say, millennial churches, right, they tend to be more tippers than tithers initially. (laughs) And it takes a while to move into that tithing area. So there's lots of trends happening now where overall giving in the church is declining. And if that becomes the limiting factor, that seems like a shame. We haven't used enough creativity, God's inspired creativity and innovation in order to catch up with where God is moving and alter the wineskins accordingly. So you don't, you think this is not, um, this is not just COVID induced, a a, a short-term situation. This is something as you, you're looking down the road, I mean, were you seeing this even sort of pre-COVID? Is that, is that where you're thinking this is a kind of a long-term impact? Yeah, this is a six-year research project we've done at Asbury Seminary, and we're not discovering anything. We're just looking at these kingdom innovations and seeing how people are innovating and finding alternate financial models. And this was happening before COVID. So I don't think COVID altered the trajectory. I think it just sped it up. It just accelerated the previous trend. So I don't think this trend, if there is ever is an end to COVID, right? I don't think this trend is going to stop once COVID stops. I think this is going to continue into the future. Yeah, it's, uh, I feel the same way about COVID as I've looked at this. I, it doesn't seem like COVID's caused anything. What, it's, what it seems to have done is sped up the 
the trends that were already in place and maybe some cracks that were there that we, you know, that weren't exposed before uh, became became exposed. So well, let, let's jump into the meat of this now. Walk, walk us through this the, these six non-traditional financial options uh, for you, for, for people to consider both for their church and their church plan. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about the, the difference between existing churches and church plants as well. Yeah, very good. So I use the acronym MINCED, M-I-N-C-E-D, and we just say, we're not going to mince words here. We're going to talk straight about money, et cetera. Um, just a note, I did an MBA program a few years ago, and the intent of that was to extract what I could from the whole entrepreneurship business world to help us in our church planting, because those are two worlds that I spent a lot of time in, both the entrepreneurship as well as church planting. So if you use the acronym MINST, uh, M stands for Monetized Underutilized Resources. So think about a church or church plant. There is some resources such as a building or a parking lot, et cetera, that's not being utilized. It may be vacant much of the week. How can you utilize that to create cash? So monetize it. The I stands for incubating new businesses. How can the church incubate new businesses inside of that church, whether it's like a, a counseling center or a, I know one church has, they use their space for like weddings each weekend. And one room is like photographer has a business there. Another room is a wedding planner. On uh, the weekends, they're vacated and those become Sunday school areas for the church. So incubating businesses through that. The, the third is nonprofits forming as mission arms of the church. So nonprofits can engage, you know, uh, societal needs in the area. And if that church adopts that societal need, whether it's say at-risk women or poverty or homelessness, whatever, they can actually get money from other organizations, even governmental organizations that the church could not. And this then becomes a mission arm of the church without the church having to cash out a whole lot of money for that. And then the C stands for co-vocational pastoring. This is for pastors who choose to work in the marketplace. Um, I consider myself a co-vocational pastor, and I've told uh, the president of Asbury Seminary, and he agreed with me, I'm a better professor and a better pastor because of the businesses I operate on the weekend outside of the Christian bubble. Okay, so yeah. that co-vocational is a, another option. Yeah, he, and talk about that yeah. for just a second, because I, the, the first time I heard that term. Um, it was at an ex-minister conference. I'd done a, a um, I think, a, a pre-con or equipping lab earlier in the morning. And a, and a guy stopped me on campus and said, you know, you use the word, the, the term bivocational. And he, and he said, I actually use the word co-vocational. And he went on, to, I remember he was in banking as well as pastoring. And he went on to tell me how the one benefit, how, how they, there was a mutual uh, benefit. And, and he said, I like to use the term co-vocational. Co uh, talk a little bit about that, because typically we've thought of, you know, tent maker, bivocational, you're doing something you don't want to do that's taking away from the ministry aspect. So talk a little bit about co-vocational, and then we'll come back to the rest of Mins. Yeah, good. So just real quick, I have these uh, five small businesses operate, and they're in like the social sector, like I have some tree houses that we've built and you know, rent out and we have an Airbnb and I have some cattle, like a little ranch. And then I do some engineering on the weekend for people to develop land, et cetera, um, and some publishing. So things like that. So what happens is, Bill, every week I engage people outside the Christian bubble, right? Which is really key because I'm a professor at a seminary and I love it, but I'm with Christians all day, but I'm teaching evangelism and church planting. 
So I need to get outside of that bubble. And every week, these businesses put me with people who are unchurched and de-churched. Oftentimes, it leads into spiritual discussion, sometimes in prayer, sometimes people coming to faith. But it gives me some uh, authentic connection with people outside the church. And what I've found is this. When people first encounter me as either like an engineer or an Airbnb host, it sets up a relationship where we're exchanging value with each other. It's very different if they first encounter me as a seminary professor or a pastor, right? So what it does, it gives me kind of like an entree into their lives and they talk like real people instead of how they want to be heard by a pastor or a professor, right? Um, So therefore, there's much benefit, I feel, that even if, you know, I didn't like financially need these other jobs, I'd still do them in order to connect with people outside the church. It's, re- it's really interesting that you say that. I remember, and I, I don't remember who it was offhand, but a while back I was talking to a church planter who um, considered himself uh, bivocational, you know, was doing it until the church grew large enough to be able to, to absorb his salary. And by the time it got to that point, he realized that this, the work that he was doing was actually his opportunity to engage in the world. And so, um, and they ended up making that a, a strategy for everybody that they brought on on staff, that everybody was going to be bivo or, you know, better said, co-vocational. And yeah, it's just, yeah what a, what a, it, it's, it's a different way. That's what I say. You've, you've got some very practical things here, but there's part of these that I think require a little bit of a paradigm shift on, on our part for, uh, for really grasping what you're talking about here. So, yeah, well, no doubt. Let me just add this, Bill, all these six models that I'm going to talk about here, these are all not just theoretical. These are all like being done right now. And I'm involved in most of these, right? But these are being done right now. And we have uh, great examples of churches doing it. So it's not just pie in the sky, like, like dreaming of what could be. This is actually saying, here's what is happening now. And I think the co-vocational is a trend that's going to accelerate into the future. Uh, w- without a doubt. I mean, most, I would say, the top three topics that uh, denominational network leaders wanted to talk about pre-COVID and, and accelerate since then were bivo or covo, uh, microexpressions, and um, and leadership pipeline. Which, interestingly, those are all sort of sort of intertwined. So, all right, we'll go good with the E, the E part of uh, minced. All right. So the E stands for entrepreneurial church plants, and this is where you start a business in order to create a venue for a church to operate. And there's lots of these, whether they're uh, coffee shops, which is kind of popular, but there's bakery shops. I have a a friend who's doing a um, haircutting barber shop kind of thing. A lot of people doing say like workout facilities, but what happens is the, unfortunately for church planning, the the building becomes a tail wagging the dog. Oftentimes the church planner like focuses their energy on keeping the building alive. What if the business does that? And then the church planter follows up on the relationships that are drawn to the business. So that's what the E stands for. And the D, and actually you mentioned one example of the D, these are decentralized churches. And there's lots of terms for it, uh, microchurch, organic church, simple church, et cetera. But it's basically looking at what if the church um, was more like an ice cube maker instead of an ice block maker. So instead of the goal being to get the ice block as big as you can get, what if the goal is to create ice cubes that cover the city and these are small like micro units? So those are the six. Yeah. Another, another great analogy <laughs> <laughs> for grasping that. Well, um, 
can we, okay, if we go back to each one and kind of dive a little bit deeper, you know, thinking about the, the first one, monetize existing church resources. And I know you and Mark DeMoss have, have worked closely together. He wrote the, the forward to this book. And, you know, in his book, The uh, Coming Revolution in Church Economics, he writes, uh, it's long past time for churches to stop building facilities on islands of land entirely to themselves and start planning mixed-use development for which the entire community can benefit. In doing so, literally, the church can be built into the community, become incarnate with the community, and be leveraging resources and assets to generate income that can potentially pay for the project. So there's more, right. you know, I like, I like what he said there, because there's, there's more going on than just generating income. So kind of flesh, flesh that out a little bit for you, what, what you're talking about in, in monetizing existing church resources. Yeah, so the church plan I'm a part of, uh, we bought a building and we created a, a space for like an event space. And what that means is then we can monetize that space. So our goal is that every day of the week, that space is used for something, right? So Sunday, there's a church. Sunday evening is like a recovery kind of church. Um, Tuesday evening, the same. There's a recovery community on the weekends. We, we have like these events that come in, whether the life events, birthday parties, et cetera. And that connects us to the community. When the community has um, recently that a Halloween like event in the, in the big city, as well as there's a Thanksgiving thing and a Christmas, we open our church for people to come in to have hot chocolate to warm up and they get connected to us. So what happens is we're looking at that space as an asset right, that can be utilized. And instead of it sitting there just getting heating, heated and cooled throughout the week, how can we monetize it? Like what value could we create for people? There, there was a church uh, nearby where we talked to them and they had an old Sunday school room that wasn't being used for like, I don't know, 10 years. And there's a group of uh, people in the gig economy, you know, they're doing their, their side hustles. They said, what if we make this a work collective? And they're going to pay like, say, a hundred bucks a month uh, when they open it up, 20 people signed up for it. So here you have a Sunday school room that was being vacant, heated and cooled. It's kind of like a drag on their heating bill. But now it's an asset that's getting utilized to create cash flow. In addition, and this is always the thrust of this bill, we're not just talking about ways for churches to find money. It's also creating uh, venues for people to be missionally engaged. Because in this case, now you have millennials who aren't so sure if the church is a good thing or not, but now the church is finding space for them to meet, and the church is smart enough. They started to say, what kind of topics do you want to hear about? They brought in some business professors, um, and I did a training on ideation and, and business profs on, like, say, tax accounting, et cetera. So in short, this gets the church an additional cash stream, but it also becomes relevant to millennials who now say, wow, that the church is answering our questions, is helping us. Wow. And so what, what would you, like, what steps can a church take? Like they're, you know, an existing church, they're looking at their facility. Maybe there's, uh, if not some space that's never used, there's certainly spaces that aren't being used all the time. How do they begin thinking about how to use, utilize those spaces? And and are there, are there pitfalls or the things that, you know, I mean, in, in any of this, we have to be careful not to think of any of it as a magic bullet, you know. The, the, but, uh, so what are, what are some of the things that churches should consider when they're looking at how they could use their facilities, not only to be better integrated into the community, but it, generate income as well? No, great question. So, like, 
if you were going to the doctor, the doctor would do like a physical and give you some prescription of what you should do, et cetera. And in the book, we do that. So we describe here are, look at your mission statement, your documents, uh, where are some alignments, where are some things outdated, et cetera. And then we ask people to look at their uh, relational network access. How many people do they know that are unchurched or dechurched? And then I guess the big business term is liquidity. We ask people to look at their financial liquidity and we give a, a formula, the quick ratio. So I don't want to scare people with business terms, but that's the most complex it gets, right? So once they find those, we have a grid that has four different blocks in it, and it gives you an indication of where you should start to pick one of these six. And once you pick one of those six, we have a chapter on each one of those that gives you questions. So for like example, on the monetizing underutilized uh, resources, you start to do an inventory. Uh, what kind of space do you have? What type of people do you have that have connections to things? What type of um, maybe land or what kind of needs are for land or parking lots? Like, so my friend Mark DeMaz, he said he's got this parking lot and they realize it's an asset. So twice a year, a circus comes to town, pays like 12,000 bucks. And that's just an asset sitting there. Why not utilize it, right? Why don't you? So you start to think about how you can monetize the space around you, which just to be honest, I think millennials are a bit better than we are at this because think about like what Uber is doing. Think about Airbnb. These are assets. People have a car. They have a, an empty bedroom and, and they're monetizing it through these different uh, you know, gig economy work. So it's the same kind of thinking. Yeah. And you mentioned the gig economy, which you know, is, um, I think, more, much more comfortable for generations coming up and, and thinking about this. But again, I, I, love, I love the thought of of, of not only generating income, but being embedded into, into the community and, and really even, even serving the community. It, uh, you mentioned in the book, you talk about holding your mission statement in one hand and your, your budget in the other, and, and do they match? And, and I was thinking about, we at Exponential, one of our key frameworks is the three dimensions of multiplication, where we talk about disciple-making, mobilization, and capacity. And capacity is is that kind of thing. It's it's um, you know it's the old don't tell me what you value. Let me see your checkbook and your calendar, and I'll tell you what you value. And right. so just even that that process of saying okay, where you know what of what of what we're spending both our time and our resources on is really investing in the community, and then you know be able to being able to create a win win where it can generate income too is 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 pretty amazing. Yeah, totally true. So, you know, um, what really drives this a bit, too, is think about the power of the talents. You have uh, the one that's just sitting on their assets. You have to be careful how I say that, right? <laughs> sitting on their assets, and God is displeased. And unfortunately, I'm not trying to be, um, you know, indicting here, but there's a lot of churches sitting on a lot of assets that are doing nothing with it. Well, they're doing something, but there's a whole lot more they could do. And in the parable, if you have the one talent, wouldn't it be good to talk to the person with the two or the five and say, what are you doing in order to double you know, your talent? And that's what we're hoping to do in the book is to say, what are others doing? That they're not just sitting on their, their one talent, but they're actually doubling it. They're utilizing it. And, and my hope is that people will stir some creative imaginations, these holy imaginations, whereby people will think about their own type of applications that we haven't even thought of yet but it's allowing the Holy Spirit to point out what assets do you have and how can these be leveraged and utilized in ways that get you into mission again, 
but also create cash flow to make it financially viable. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, uh, the maybe the, the difference in the, the parable and churches is they don't realize they're sitting on it. You right. Know, as opposed to the one talent that, that buried it to protect it. You yeah. Know, and that's what I love about what you're doing and getting, you know, getting this out so that we begin to think about that. How much do you think, you know, there, there, sometimes I, I sense that there is this sacred secular divide, you know, um, that, that there is this, uh, you know, kingdom resources and, you know, there's somehow, um, I know they're, they're different than marketplace resources. How speak to that a little bit. Just. Yeah. Thank you. That that's been my journey for like 30 some years, right? I was an engineer coming out of school for seven years and always wanted to be in ministry, so to speak. And I thought I was just in secular work. And then I was a missionary for 13 years. I was in ministry realizing that when I was an engineer, I had access to people that I don't now, you know? So uh, Tim Keller has this nice statement where he talks about, um, how does God distribute the good gifts in the world? Like you're given talents for engineering or for business or for whatever. Those are distributed through people doing their good works in the marketplace. Hmm. And the marketplace is a network of relationships whereby people exchange value. As you exchange value, whether it's uh, engineering, business, uh, lodging or whatever, you're also exchanging value uh, spiritually. Right. So you're uh, showing empathy, you're showing encouragement, and, and those things really stick out in the marketplace. So as you do your work with excellence, you show empathy to people that you're engaged in, you encourage them. What happens is you're taking the good gifts that God has meant for society and you're distributing them. And then you're also creating value that relates to uh, like kingdom work. So in my own mind, I used to have this tension between the engineering work I did and the ministry I did. And now those lines are much more blurred because uh, the co-vocational term helps me because it, it helps me realize that my primary vocation is to love and serve God. But the secondary callings that Oz Guinness talks about are all, there are many, and they're all meant to fulfill that primary calling. So mm -hmm. whether I'm engineering or Airbnb host, whatever, these are all meant to fulfill that primary calling of loving and serving God. Therefore, I try to treat those businesses in that regard. That helps me blur those lines in a way that I didn't when I was a younger guy. Yeah, it's, I, it seems like maybe the better way to think of it is um, assets that are controlled by kingdom people as yeah. opposed to other ones. But yeah, because I, I, where I began to struggle with this a, uh, you know, a decade or so ago, I had a, a friend that was going uh, through a bit of a crisis. He worked at a Burger King and literally God met him cleaning the women's restroom at a Burger King, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. about as what you would normally think of as an unsacred place, you know, and there was the spirit of God that just really got a hold of his life. Another friend that, you know, somebody, a brother had given him a CD, had no idea it was a Christian CD. And just through that music pulled over the side of the road and, and, you know, get, and, and that guy's been a full-time vocational ministry ever since. And, and yeah, so it's, it's, it just seems like with, with the way God, God fills the earth. And so, you know, thinking in terms of, you know, getting rid of that sacred secular divide, maybe thinking in terms of kingdom, uh, kingdom controlled assets, assets that are controlled by kingdom people, but yeah, well, this is good. Well, I like the term vocation. Say that again. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, sorry to interrupt, but I like that term vocation. You know, that comes from the Latin vocare, which has this meaning of like calling, right? So if we think about the vocation we have, 
it's not just meaning like a secular choice, but what if all of these are our callings that we have, yeah. even the ones that are mundane, right? That we think these yeah. all have this connotation that there's some calling that can help us fulfill God's missional intent for us in the marketplace, not in spite of it. Well, and that's what I like about the books that you've written, not only this one, but the other one that you did for Exponential too, because you're, you're empowering the priesthood of all believers. You know, as you, as you begin to, you know, it's this idea that all of us have an Ephesians 2.10 gifting. Yes. And, and, and most of us, you know, the, the stories that you hear of pastors, you know, in their calling to ministry, it's oftentimes this really beautiful story of, you know, um, how God worked in their lives. Well, you know, everyday life Christ followers that could have ex- the same experiences moving into, you know, perhaps businesses or, you know, now beginning to manage the, the existing facilities with, with how they're renting it out, how they're serving the community with those facilities. That's, that's, that's kind of a, a backdrop piece of, of what you're writing here. In fact, th- this next one, this incubate new businesses is it, it hits right at the heart of that. Talk, talk a little bit more about that and how, churches can practically step into this idea of incubating new businesses? Yeah, so uh, there's several churches that I'm aware of that um, encourage people in their church, identify the entrepreneurs and encourage them to incubate a business. And what that the residual benefit is that it creates this um, kind of like affirmation of the entrepreneurship gift. And then oftentimes these entrepreneurs then either tithe back to the church or there's some kind of reciprocal relationship such that uh, it has a financial benefit to the church, but it also helps to lift up the people inside of it. Now, the interesting thing here, Bill, to, to note is these are not new ideas. Like these go way back. Um, and if you really look at the early church, it's often been described as a house church movement. What we find though, from theologians like uh, Craig Keener, he said in antiquity, homes often had the business in the front and where you slept in the back or the business downstairs and where you worked was upstairs. So the early house church movement was really a marketplace movement. And oftentimes where people met were the, the bigger houses, which were the bigger businesses. And those are the ones that were big enough for people to you know, gather. So these ideas of incubating new business is not a new concept, right? This is like has a long history. And I think what's happened is the industrial revolution is where we started to tear these things apart where you worked and where you played and where you worship were different prior to the industrial revolution. Those were all very, very close together. Yeah. It's interesting. I was just looking at a book earlier that was uh, recounting after world war II. Uh, actually it was a court case uh, in a suburb of Cleveland that began to allow cities to zone industrial, commercial, residential part, you know, because it, with the advent of, of the, uh, the car, which is, it's interesting. Now, if you look at a lot of developments, you don't have any of the large, single-use malls. Uh, in fact, a lot of those are being converted to, to mixed-use spaces with, uh, with uh, residential on the second floor. Uh, but most everything is the sort of the main street, you know, residential, commercial, all kind of, all kind of mixed together, being the, uh, understanding the importance of, of that integration. And, and, and I think if, if churches, it, it, you know, what you're suggesting is churches see that integration as well and, and, and really see this opportunity uh, to um, to birth businesses are are there I mean you know a lot of pastors you don't have a marketplace background at all what are there are there things that they can do you know if they see this and say man I, I think I've got people like that in my church what what would you suggest that they do 
Yeah, so I encourage churches to look around and see the entrepreneurs in your church and gather them together and start having them ideating together. And you're in the midst of that. What will happen is it's an exciting ride. I have guys that I meet with to do this. And it's just, first of all, it's a lot of fun. Second of all, they come out with stuff I would never think about. Um, in the history of innovation, there's a term called the adjacent possible. Mm. What that means is when people from disparate areas come together and they get adjacent to each other, new possibilities arise that would not have occurred otherwise. So if you get a guy over here thinking about like metallurgy and a guy over here who's doing wine pressing, they, they have their own business. Once they come together, and this is actually how Gutenberg developed the printing press. He, he came together with a um, guy doing wine and he put one of his metal figures underneath of this press and it pushed it on the parchment. Interesting. So the, yeah, that, that's I, how. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Well, that's often how innovation comes about, right? It's not through picking something out of the air, but it's getting people with disparate ideas that come together. So in your church, gather these people and now they have the front seat in the church planting table. They used to think the only benefit of their occupation was to bankroll the church plant, right? But now they realize what they do every day and that what really energizes them is a God-gifted ability. So utilize that for the church plant in order to stimulate new creative ideas that incubate these businesses. Yeah. And so it might be a little bit of, um, of disciple-making in helping uh, marketplace people, marketplace entrepreneurs see their role. Um, yes. I have a good friend of mine who's an incredible entrepreneur, a great Christ follower, but because the paradigm for so long has been, you know, you sit, you, you volunteer when you're asked, you, you, you know, you contribute to the pastoral team and they're the ones that do the work that, that, you know, it's, it's uh, working to, working to get that uh, reshaped. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, so think of this, Bill, if you had somebody come up to you after church and said, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm called to be a pastor or a missionary. It almost be like spiritual malpractice, not to encourage them and nurture them and help them along. But what if you have somebody in your church says, you know, I feel like I'm gifted in entrepreneurship. Wouldn't yeah. it be spiritual malpractice not to say, you know, that's a God given ability. What yeah. if we nurture that and incorporate that into our church planting? Can you help us in that area? So, it's back to that sacred secular divide that you talked about earlier. What if we blur these two and recognize that these are all gifts that God has given to us. And then we're just going to utilize those for God's intended purpose for it. And for some of these entrepreneurs, perhaps their gifting is to incubate new businesses to help their church or church. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that I grasping the idea that we're all full-time pastors. We just won't yeah. all draw a paycheck from the church. Yeah. Well, I want to keep moving because I want to hit all of these. The The next one was nonprofits as mission arms of the church. And sometimes we've not wanted to mix parachurch, you know, and there are some dangers. So yeah, talk about a little bit more about that one. Yeah. So um, what a nonprofit can do is it can get access to funding from even other churches, as well as um, government organizations that would not give to the church. Now, what if the church has a heart for some of these social concerns in the community, and they have a missional heart for that? They can start a nonprofit that's autonomous from the church. Now, they often have board representation. So somebody in the church is represented on the board that meets every year, but it's autonomous, and therefore it has its own 501c3 operation, et cetera. 
and it creates uh, an avenue to address some of the missional needs in the community. So this becomes like the mission arm of the church informally, but it's funded not by the church, but by those outside the church. Now, churches often are well situated for this because the church is a nonprofit and they know, you know, the filing requirements and the, you know, all the, the forms to fill out, et cetera. But also in churches, there's often like a great untapped resource, like human resource. So you have people in your church that are, say, they're lawyers, they're accountants, they're, they know finance. And all of a sudden you say, hey, we need your skills to launch this nonprofit. And all of a sudden they're just kind of sitting on their talents, not knowing how to have kingdom value. And you just wake in the sleeping giant, you know. Yeah. So I, I think churches are well suited for these nonprofits. And, and third, I think the reason they're well suited is that oftentimes churches are more trusted in a community than a new nonprofit. They don't know anybody in that. So if a church starts one, they usually have a bit more social capital, hopefully. So therefore people are more apt to like drop off their kids there or to you know, participate in it than if it was just a nonprofit that nobody knows anything about, like a new startup. So I think it's a great opportunity for churches to be engaged in mission without that mission being a heavy drain on the financial budget. Yeah. And, and I don't want to be prescriptive here, um, which is always the danger of, of giving examples, you know, because they're, you want people to be thinking. I mean, there are, there are way more things than you and I. If you and I sat for three days, we wouldn't think of every idea that there was. But, but just to give kind of spark some imagination, what are some, what are some of the nonprofits that you've seen uh, be birthed through churches and, uh, and blessing churches that way? Yeah, you know, this is where the sky's the limit. I mean, it really is. Um, so I mentioned Mark DeMaz earlier. He is kind of the master at this. They have a budget of about a half million dollars. And I think all of that comes from outside the church, right? So you're talking about things like a chess club for uh, kids who don't fit into sports, et cetera, or um, immigration, like the great need for immigrants to have somebody they can trust, help them through legal issues, unwed mothers, you know, who are often ostracized or there's lots of, you know, misinformation out there. Um, you can think of after school type of things. And, and of course, in the history of the church, there's been a lot of like daycare or uh, schools that are embedded inside of a church. And, and these can be like nonprofit organizations that can greatly serve the community. It increases the contact with people, you know, outside the church, but it also has a financial benefit that it's, it's not a financial drain on the church, even though the church gets credit, so to speak, for engaging these areas. Um, one other area in that is the nonprofit, when they're looking for an office space, they can rent office space from the church at market value or maybe under market value. So therefore, that becomes a direct positive financial benefit to the church. But you can see all the different kind of creative options that are out there. And, and a lot of it, is just stoking Holy Spirit passions in people. Like, what are you passionate about? And how could a nonprofit, you know, uh, engage that area? And how could our church help you and assist you in that? You have just opened up all of these um, latent missionaries inside of your church to get creative. Yeah. Yeah. The, thinking about the um, them the paying rent as offices. Um, right. You recently met Ethan Fernhaber from Multiply Indiana and Josh Houston from Mercy Road. And they they started on the second floor of one of their facilities, in fact, where we have our learning communities. They uh, they call it Nexus. 
and the um, and that that has worked out incredibly. In fact, they brought together some for-profit and non-profit businesses that you know are um, having kingdom impact, um, and that's yeah. really cool to see. And it, it seems like there's some overlap with the incubate new businesses. Like, would the seems like the process of of the imagining the process of of birthing ideas might be similar. You just now are, I guess this is a question. It, are, are they similar? And, and is it more just about, Hey, that fits better in the nonprofit, you know, that as a nonprofit platform, this would be better as a for-profit platform. Yeah, no, that's good thinking. So it doesn't mean when you pick one of these six models, it doesn't mean you exclude the others, right? You could actually have great blurring between them. It's really uh, like I say, the devil's in the details. It's when you really get down to starting something, then you start to get these distinctives. You know, are we a nonprofit or for-profit? Are we incubating a new business? Or are we creating a new venue for an entrepreneurial plant? You know, that's when the, the more fine-tuned differences come about. But as you're perceptively picking up here, Bill, these actually have great overlap between them. And it doesn't mean that you can only have one and not the other. People often kind of bleed over into the others. Yeah. What we the next one is a co-vocational pastor, and we've we've touched that um, a little bit, but talk talk about that some more in, in some of the examples that you've seen there. Yeah, the co-vocational pastor, what I've found is that it actually breathes new life into some pastors and it gives them like a missional vision for their work. I know some of these uh, young church planters, they actually really like some of the work that they do. And the the past thought was, well, you have to give up this occupation that you love in order to be a full-time church planter. And now they're realizing, well, maybe it's almost the best of both worlds. Now, one caution on that, and this is from my own context as well in this whole co-vocation, oftentimes it works best in a church planting team. So I'm one of four teaching pastors at this church plant. All of us are co-vocational. And that really works well because that means I preach once a month. (laughs) And if something comes up at work, I have three other folks to rely upon to fill in the gap because otherwise if it's all you and you're the only one that's like leadership in the church, if there's a um, competition for time, you have the, the for-profit that's making you money and keep bread on the table. And then the church, is, you know, that is your ministry. Unfortunately, the church can suffer because you have to make sure you're financially viable. But what we recommend in these co-vocational thinking is to be a part of a team whether it's three or four or whatever, it works really well. And it actually it breathes some life into the church planters and builds a really close team as well because you rely upon each other pretty well. And these become some of your best friends. Yeah. You, you mentioned your church. I want to just just take a couple minutes and talk because I, I know if, if I'm a pastor listening, I'm like, wait a minute, nobody, because none of the four of you drop, you, do you draw any kind of income from the church? No, no I don't. You're not drawing any income from the church. How do you like for administration, for, you know, some of the other um, functions of the church that we typically think of and, may, and maybe it's not typical. Talk just a little bit about the operations of, of your church yeah. and how, how you okay. work. That. Great question. So one of the four, which is in one of your learning communities, by the way, Bill, <laughs> one of the four has like a quarter time salary type of thing to do exactly that. We call him the uh, pastor of mobilization, Right. So he makes sure that, you know, the schedules are there, bills are paid, uh, people get in. If, when they're renting space, they're met and they're and they introduced to the church, introduced to the space, et cetera. So you have one person that does that quarter time, but 
in his particular case, he says, you know, my wife is working full time and I really don't want a full time job because I have three children. I really want to take care of my kids. So this quarter time gig really works for us. Mm-hmm. You know, it provides what they need for the family. And, um, and it also provides what the church needs. Now, it works for us because of where we are at this point, And we have um, these event issues keep escalating, I think, because like in COVID, uh, weddings were a bit down and now people are trying to catch up again. So our space is getting really booked up and it, it's good on the, the cash flow side, but it takes more time on that other side. So, yeah, one of the four does have like a quarter time type of payment, but that salary is like nothing compared to what most churches need in order to keep a church alive. Yeah, I, I think it's great. It's, a, you know, rethinking, you know, just what it means to 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 lead a church and uh yeah, and, they, and they are really, it's cool to see you living out what you're writing about, too. Uh, well, this is yeah. fun. This is real life, you know. So, like, we're not writing from an armchair perspective, you know, like sitting back and writing what could be. We're actually seeing what is happening. And I'm not saying we have it all figured out either. We're still yeah. learning as we go. And that's why you know, he's in the learning community with Exponential with you, which has been a great experience, by the way. And, and we get information fed back. Um, so we're trying to, to learn as we go, as other people are doing as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, I'm actually having a discussion with a national leader yesterday about, and I said, I'm uncomfortable with the word model just mm. because that tends to, you know, make people think it's, it's figured out. And I think beyond the, beyond the prevailing model of the church, which, which I would certainly say is a model, um, I, I, you know, I think it is open to our imagination and, uh, and, and, you know, what it could be. So question came in, uh, they were asking, you know, we're talking about your church. So uh, is there a place where you, where you list your church space? So if somebody, if you, if you're, if you're wanting to use your, you know, advertise your, your church, yeah. How do you go about letting, letting people, letting the community know that it's available? Yeah. So there's a site, uh, shadowlandcommunitychurch.com. And then there's a spot in there for, uh, we call it the second story. So it's kind of a double entendre. This is the second story of your life. You know, you get a new lease on life. It's also the the literal second story of the building. And uh, there's a calendar there where you can like go into and then request the space, et cetera. So that's how people get into the space. A lot of the space, though, it's really interesting, Bill. It's been word of mouth. Like once people realize that we've got this, you know, we we pinned it out pretty good. You know, it's an old space. It's about a hundred year old building and it looks legit. It looks like a fun space to be in. And when people go there, it's just been word of mouth. We haven't had to do too much advertising because it's right in the center of the downtown and we're given a, a good rate, you know, so we're not trying to be exorbitant um, because part of it's this missional connection. Like we wouldn't want to make a whole lot of money, but not have missional connection with people. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's been word of mouth. And we've actually been thinking lately, now that we're getting so much traffic, maybe we should do some more like um, some of these tools for event organizing, et cetera. We're not there yet. Um, and the need is like getting us closer to that. So it's kind of been like the lean startup mode where you start up with the, you know, the MVP minimum viable product, and then right. as it grows, then you add things on that people are requesting, but not until then. Because you don't right. want to waste a lot of energy and cash until people need it. Right. I'm, I'm reminded of a church uh, that I came across uh, a few years ago that 
it was a downtown church um, in the Northwest that a space became available downtown and you just, you know, uh, you know, it's hard to find space. So they, they went ahead and got it. And in the process of rezoning, they were going to be required to, for 10,000 square feet of it had to be uh, for-profit business. Mm. And the church uh, initially saw that as, you know, kind of an onerous requirement. Long story short, that became the way they engaged the city. Yes. The, the city council had their meetings there. There was a, you know, the, the number one coffee shop in the, in the city and, you know, and that, that city was located there. And so, yeah, just the incredible opportunities. Um, well, I want, I want to keep going because we want to hit, I want to hit these other two um, entrepreneurial churches located inside the marketplace. Talk, talk about that. Yeah. So these are uh, people that start a business in order to create a venue for a church to meet there. So, uh, and the other side of it too is perhaps you're working in a business already and therefore you open that space certain times of the week for the church to meet there. And the big goal of this is that the business takes care of the biggest need for the church financially, which is the building, heating, lights, tax, et cetera. And then the church planters leverage the relationships that are connected through that business. So I've mentioned there's lots of different options for this. Um, a friend, Paul, uh, who lives in London, he said 100,000 people went by his street every Sunday with no Christian witness. So they opened up a coffee shop slash sweet treat shop. And he was working for uh, several years as a, like a youth worker. He said this, after the first so many months, I had more conversations in one week with people outside the church than I had in a whole year working inside the church. And what that meant was these people in London, which is about 3% uh, attend some church, they were connecting with him and he had a church that would meet on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. inside that coffee shop slash sweet treats. And it went so well economically that now they have another one in London. And this is in an area where there's low church attendance and he's gaining connection to them, not by like evangelizing on the street corner, but by inviting them in for coffee and sweet treats that they pay him good money right? Such that yeah. it stays open and they, they meet inside of that building on Wednesday nights. Uh, that, I love that. And, and you, you actually go into a little bit more detail in the other book that, that we released uh, called Entrepreneurial Church Planting, right? Right. It's, that's where you kind of, yeah, and Bruce, Bruce will put that link in the hub as well. That's another free download from Exponential that will uh, kind of take a little bit of the deeper dive into that particular um, into that particular aspect. Yeah, I was thinking about you know again. I'm, I'm in the conversation here more so than even reading the book. I'm I'm seeing the over the overlap is really is really interesting. Um, I one something I've I've starting to see, and I wonder if you are. Um, I'm seeing business for mission and business as mission, and and how I'm delineating those two is the business for mission. Is a for it's a for-profit arm, and you know profit is the the number one you know number one priority because that that profit then goes into ministry. But I'm also starting to see business as mission, where the the number one goal might be to take care of um, uh, single parents in a in a given neighborhood or um, you know parents of foster care children whatever it might be, and profit is you know second or third in the list, and it's more a means to an end. Um, are you seeing, are, are, have, have you seen any of that in terms of, of that kind of distinction in, in business? Yeah. Well, let me 
put it this way, and this comes from some of the reading I've had of John Wesley. People often recognize Wesley as a theologian, but don't realize that he made five to six million dollars in today's money in his business. <laughs> so that's a pretty decent business, you know. Yeah. Uh, and um, he doesn't use the terms, but we categorize, categorize this as like triple bottom line and means this. When you make a business decision, and I use this principle in the other businesses I do, um, you make a business decision, it's not solely based on the financial profit, right? That's not the single bottom line. But you also calculate what's the social capital being lost or destroyed or, or produced, and what's the spiritual capital being produced or lost. Hmm. And if you make financial profit but lose social or spiritual capital, that is not a good deal. Mm-hmm. So in the businesses I have, you know, I've have to give up some profit at times in order to create social and spiritual capital. Um, and that principle, I think, is really helpful. So like with the tree houses that we have, you know, these tree houses have, um, you know, they're heated, air conditioned, hot shower, toilet, kitchenette, et cetera. You're in the trees. And so it's a really awesome experience. But on Monday nights, anybody on this show here, any Christian worker gets 50% off because we lose money on it. But I want to create spiritual capital. I want every church planner and pastor to feel like rejuvenated, the, the healing effects of being like around trees and in nature, et cetera. So I would say this, Bill, that the triple bottom line works, whether it's business for mission or business as mission. I think it's just being a good Christian businessman or businesswoman that on every decision you ask yourself, what's the financial capital, spiritual capital and social capital? Because if you're in business for a while, you'll get somebody say this to you. Don't take this personal, Jay. This is just business. Yeah. <laughs> that means you need to duck because they're about to hit you in the gut, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I say to myself, you know, if you're going to lose spiritual capital, social capital, and even though you're going to gain a lot of financial, it is not a good deal. Don't take it. Don't bite on that. Right. So I think that bleeds into just being um, a Christian business person that does good deals with people in ways that create those three capitals. Yeah. I I think that's a, that's an excellent way to think about that. That's, that's, that's great. Um, Well, let's move into the, the next one, the last one here, decentralized churches um, that you talk about in, in chapter eight, Uh, explain what you're talking about there. Yeah. So you talked earlier about micro churches, right? That's one way of talking about it. It's basically thinking through, what are some of these small ice cubes, right, that can be spread out throughout the city uh, that create um, Christian community, but also usually address some type of social concern, some type of missional uh, function in the community. And as a result, usually they don't have to have a big building. It could be in a home. Uh, One thing we have found, interestingly enough, the middle class, upper class, they are, are kind of cool with meeting in homes, um, lower socioeconomic class or those, mm-hmm. they often don't like to meet in homes. And there's some socioeconomic reasons behind it. Like they don't feel comfortable having people in their home and they don't want to go to somebody else's home where the person's showing off their nice home, et cetera. So it's more like a middle class, you know, upper middle class kind of vibe to be in the homes. So a lot of the, um, some of the micro churches I've seen for lower socioeconomic classes meet in more neutral spaces. Right. So it could be in a in a business area, it could be in a coffee shop, whatever. But it's basically like decentralizing such that it, it keeps the financial cost way down that uh, makes it amenable for churches. 
Yeah, this is, uh, as I mentioned to you before, uh, talking to the denominational network leaders, even for a year or two leading up to you know, March of 2020, um, COVO, uh, COVO, and COVO, BIVO, Micro, and Leadership Pipeline were the topics. I mean, I, I don't even know what would have been the other one. And this seems to hit on, on all of those, you know, it, this, and, and even looking at, at Minst, it, certainly the INCED, INCE tie into that, that whole idea of incubating new businesses or, and or nonprofits. And the idea that you'll be co-vocational, you know, for a lot of microchurch networks, it doesn't cost anything to start a microchurch, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the opportunity to be able to do that, um, the, the, the way you're able to get into the marketplace and to be able to meet ministry needs, I, I think that, um, yeah, it's just a, a powerful, powerful opportunity. And, uh, yeah. yeah, you bet. Well, I hope, Bill, that everybody that listens or, or is reading through this material recognizes that, like in the power of the talents, everybody has at least one, right? Everybody has something. There's no church planner out there that has says, I have zero talents, right? Everybody has something. So what we're trying to do is to kind of like open up the box a little bit, recognize the assets that you have at your disposal. How can you like invest them in the kingdom to see God's fruit produced through it? And, and my hope is that it sparks these like holy imaginations, these holy yeah. creativities where people start to dream again. Yeah. And, and then as, as different people get ideas, that sparks other ideas with someone else. And yeah, and, and that's what I love about what you've done. I, I want to hit one other thing before uh, before we go here that I think is really significant. Early on in our conversation today, you talked about um, that the early church were actually marketplace churches, not house churches. Um, right. And in, in, in your book, Entrepreneurial Church Planting, that um, I think Bruce has a link he could put to uh, for that as well. Uh, you talk about the Great Commission, theological foundations and implications for marketplace ministry. You really go into the theology of, of what's behind there. And, and I think it's important for people to understand this, this minced is not this, um, it's not this new fad and, hey, let's try this for a while. Let's, that you're really, in a sense, you're going back to some biblical roots of the church and and the early the early 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 days of church planting, not not 1980, but like you know, um, and, <laughs> yeah. Could you uh, just if you could touch on that just a little bit before we go on the on just that that theology the, the theological aspect of that? Yeah, there's a whole lot there. Um, let me just give an overarching thing. I, I wanted to make sure that people knew that there's theological ground for this. And actually to realize in the history of the church, there have been significant movements in the marketplace to do this type of church planting. And there's also missiological backing, um, as well as um, you know, biblical support for this. So what we try to do in those early chapters are look at like Old Testament, New Testament, as well as um, like Paul's perspective, and then, you know, the writings of the gospel, and then historical writing, and then missiological basis, because What's happening is this, if, if this is scriptural and there's historical precedent for it and it makes missiological sense, why aren't more people wading into this, right? Um, I think what's happening is it's what's called the curse of knowledge, where people have had some knowledge in the past that worked. And because it worked, when they get stressed, they go back to what worked in the past in order to get to the future. That's what Blockbuster tried to do. 
when the, the digital revolution came along, Blockbuster tried to double down on what worked. They made more copies available of you know, the VCRs as opposed to going to a digital route. So yeah. if, if there's this biblical, theological, historical, missiological basis, let's not be limited by the curse of knowledge. Let's look outside of that and go to our primary sources in order to gain back our footing again. Yeah. That I, I so appreciate what you've done in your writing here, not only your writing, but as a, as a practitioner and really, really living into this. I, that's helping us reshape a, a paradigm about, about church, the role of church, where it can be. The, the, I mean, there, God is an incredible, um, I mean, you just think of all of the species as an incredibly creative God. And he, he invited, in fact, he revealed himself first as creator. You know, he was revealed first as a creator and we're created in, in his image. And, uh, and so to, to, and this is the latent capacity of the church. And, uh, and I really appreciate you uh, pressing into that. And, and I've uh, been looking forward to doing this, this webinar, because I think this is really important for where, where the church is headed. And uh, just want to thank you. Uh, thank you for being with us today and for, uh, for all that you're doing. Well, I appreciate it, Bill. I love Exponential, what you all are doing there. And of course, I always uh, attend the Exponential Conference in March. And if, if people want to contact me, they can through the W at moons, M-O-O-N-S dot com. Uh, love to talk with folks. And I try to you know do some coaching for folks to help them through some of the individual steps to make it happen. Because we're not just trying to give like general information, but we're trying to actually produce transformation. Take a church or church plant and move them through the the direction in order to be financially viable and missionally vibrant. Yeah. And uh, you, if you want to hear more from Jay, uh, Jay and I will actually be doing a couple of more webinars, I think on the uh, Wednesday, the 24th and December 1st, where we'll be bringing in other practitioners. Uh, so you'll hear more of those stories. So I look forward to, to doing that with you as well, man. Uh, Great. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for everybody for being here.